a bruised reed he will not break. This is speaking of Christ. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That is uh, the prophecy of Christ and his crucifixion and what happened to him when he was uh, crucified. They plucked out his beard and uh, they struck him on the cheek and they spat on him and of course hurled insults at our Lord. So we thank the Lord for the work of Christ being the servant of the Lord's people. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? The answer is no one. Just like we read in Romans 8, who can lay a charge against God's elect? No one. Let us pray as we consider these things. Father, we thank you for Christ, our servant. We thank you, Lord, for Christ as he serves us right now. Seated at your right hand. He serves us, Lord, as our high priest, as our intercessor, as our advocate, as our justifier, as our righteousness. Lord, Christ serves us right now. His office is never ceasing. It is never ending. It is an eternal office. We thank you, Lord, for the selflessness of Christ, the selflessness in his service as he serves his people, as he serves those whom he has purchased by his blood. Lord, we thank you for Christ as we celebrate his birth in this season. May we as believers not forget, not lose sight of the reason for the season, the true reason. We're singing glory to the newborn king as we sing. Christ is the king. He is king forever. He sits on the throne of David forever. He rules and he reigns right now. Lord, he is the sovereign. He is sovereign over our lives. He is sovereign over this universe. As the late theologian R.C. Sproul proclaimed, there is not one rogue molecule in all of creation, for Christ is sovereign and rules over it all. We thank you, Lord, that Christ is the bruised reed, but he did not break. He is the smoking flax that will not quench. He brought forth justice and truth. He did not fail, nor was he discouraged. Christ finished the work that you call him to do Lord to the fact that his last words on the cross were it is finished Christ finished his work of being providing the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins he finished the work of proclaiming repentance and believing the gospel he finished the work of showing us God in the flesh. He finished the work, Lord, of making a way for lost people to be found, for sinners to be saved. He finished that marvelous work, Lord, 
And he rose from the dead victoriously on the third day and ascended to heaven where he is seated right now at your right hand. His work was finished. So, Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his work. May we never forget it. May we always remember it. And, Father, also, we thank you for our church, our church family, the work that you have done in us and through us for all these years, these 13 years as a church. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've blessed us with. We thank you for all the members that have have come through that have been a blessing to us and we pray Lord that we have been a blessing to them also we thank you Lord for the new members that have come and joined our fellowship Lord we thank you for the members who are struggling in their faith struggling in their assurance of salvation struggling as babes Lord that we as a church may disciple them that we may love them and pray for them and serve them well as they are part of the body of Christ. We thank you for those, Lord, who have a desire to become members but have not done that yet, Lord, that you may work in their hearts to do that also. We thank you, Lord, for persevering us all as members of this body, persevering me as a pastor. Lord, we pray that you continue to do that by your spirit, continue to motivate us by your grace, Lord, to continue to serve the local church, to be committed to the local church to be committed in our giving in our serving uh, in our loving in all of our commitments to your church Lord and Lord I pray that you've been all of our sister churches this morning and just like minded churches like minded pastors also Lord in their churches that your grace may be with them be with those pastors as they help shepherd those churches Brother Sylvester, uh, Brothers Galbraget and Josephus over in Liberia and Zimbabwe, respectively. Uh, Brother Steve Mays and uh, Carlton and Phil, Anthony Cook, um, Brother Curly and Lionville, uh, Brother Cody out there, Iron City Baptist, um, Brother Justin Holland up at Mountain View right up the street. Lord, we thank you for these men. Brother James uh, Patterson, my good friend. Uh, all these men, Lord, we, we thank you for them. Strengthen them, Lord. Strengthen their churches. Strengthen their congregations. Uh, bless them to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless them, Lord, to persevere in gospel ministry. And, Lord, as we come down to the preaching of your word, Father, we pray that you may be glorified and magnified in everything that is said this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church about the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, may your word fall on the good ground of our hearts. Lord, cause our hearts to be good ground so that we can hear the word and receive it and live by it. Lord, fill me with your spirit to teach this text well. Lord, help us all to understand because at times we struggle too. Help us all, Lord, to know you, to know your truth through your word as has been revealed. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to comprehend your precious truths that we will hear uh, this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at um, 
two passages this morning, Matthew 1 and 1. Um, this the first part of that verse. And then the uh, primary time is going to be spent looking at Genesis 22, which we read earlier this morning in our uh, scripture reading for the day. Matthew 1 and 1. And this is our second sermon in our Advent series. And our theme this year is Who is Jesus? We're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the son of David. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus as the son of Abraham. You see that at the very first verse of Matthew, the first chapter. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the beginning of the second verse says, Abraham begot Isaac. So, we talked last week about, in Jewish history, the importance of David and Abraham. Uh, of course, David was the greatest king that uh, Israel ever had as a nation. And, of course, David was flawed. He was a sinner. You know, he committed grave sins against the Lord. But the Lord still set his mercy on uh, David. He made the covenant, the, the Davidic covenant he made. Uh, to David that there will never fail to be a man sitting on his throne and of course the scripture was talking about Christ so David is the greatest king in Israel's history he's the most beloved the most revered the city uh, of Israel uh, was called the holy city it's called the city of David because uh, that's where the temple uh, dwelt so that's why Jerusalem is so important in uh, Israel's history because that, that was the city of David and of course Abraham was the patriarch of the Hebrew of the Jewish people he was the father of the Jewish people that's why he's called the son of Abraham and Abraham is revered also in uh, Israel's history and also in Jewish culture okay so we have those two main figures uh, that are types of Christ in the Old Testament among others so this morning, we're going to look at Jesus as the son of Abraham. And we're going to look at it from Genesis 22, the account of the sacrifice um, of Isaac, his son. The thing about Jesus was fascinating, as we always know, is that more attention has been given to Jesus than any other figure in world history. More devotion has been given to Jesus. More adoration has been given to Jesus than any other person in history. And also more opposition has been given to Jesus than any other person ever. So while at the same time being universally adored, Jesus is also universally opposed. There's no person in human history who has had the impact on human history like Jesus has and there will never ever be anyone who will every word that Jesus has ever said has been analyzed has been picked apart has been scrutinized has been debated every single word think about that more than all the kings and queens who've ever lived. More than all philosophers. 
and scientists and so-called experts put together. None of them have been as read and as criticized as Christ. And think about this. After 2,000 years since Christ ascended to heaven, actually since he was even on earth in physical form as the God-man, there's never been a time where Christ hasn't been studied around the world. In our 24-hour days, there's never a time where Christ is not studied. Millions and millions of people study Christ every single day. And the thing is, Jesus only lived 33 years. He lived in a relatively small space of land. His ministry didn't venture far from where he was born. But yet, think about the greatest impact among impacts. One of the greatest impacts that Christ's birth made was that it divided time. That's why we have B.C. and A.D. That's because of Christ's birth. Think about that. B.C. means before Christ. Now you have, of course, in the last 10 or 15 years, the secularists in uh, academic circles, they've used C.E. and B.C.E. C.E. meaning common era and B.C.E. meaning before common era. If you, uh, you know, some college textbooks and, you know, in, in, in the academic world, they've, you know, the secularists, they have sought to try to erase Christ from history. Instead of using B.C., which means before Christ, they're using B.C.E. before the common era. And A.D., Anno, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord, they're trying to replace that with C.E. But no matter what they try to do, they can't deny the fact that Christ's birth literally changed time and history. Think about that. That's how powerful, that's how impactful Christ is to our world. So we asked the question this week as we did last week. Who is this person? Who is Jesus? We're asking this question during this Advent season, but that is something we must always ponder when we talk to people about Christ or when we hear people talk about Christ. Who is Jesus? And Matthew gives us our guide as we are looking at these uh, weeks. Again, he says a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who was Abraham's famous son? It was Isaac. Isaac was the son of sacrifice. But there would be Jesus because Jesus was the son of sacrifice. Isaac, we're going to look at it, look at it here in the text. Isaac points to Christ as our sacrifice. That's who Isaac points to. He points to Christ as our sacrifice. And we all know Isaac's story, as, as I just, just read. You know, Abraham and Sarah were trying to have children all their adult lives. I think Sarah was 100 and Abraham was 90. And they were trying to have children. No, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. That's what it was. And at the, at the ripe old age of 100, <laughs> Abraham, uh, you know, Sarah was 90 years old. Uh, God had promised Abraham that he was going to give him a son through Sarah. And of course, Sarah was barren. She was 90 years old. So 
since she couldn't have children at the time, you know, she laughed when God gave her that promise. When you read the Genesis account. And so, um, Sarah couldn't have children. So she instead gave her, her handmaid, her servant, to Abraham to have his child. And Abraham went into her and she conceived. But the problem was, this was Hagar. Hagar was her name. The son that was born from Hagar was not the son of promise. His name was Ishmael. And so she gave birth to Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son that God had promised Abraham that his descendants would go through. So Abraham tried to, uh, and, and Sarah tried to basically short circuit God, and it did not work. And do you know, until this day, that, that birth of Ishmael, Ishmael and, and, um, and, and Isaac were brothers. They had the same father, okay? But Ishmael and um, Hagar were, were sent off into the, into the wilderness. I think that's found in Genesis, the 20th, 21st chapter. Abraham made a great feast same day that Isaac was weaned and Sarah saw that Hagar the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham scoffing this is uh, Genesis 21 verse 9 therefore she said to Abraham cast out this bond woman and her son for the son of this bond woman shall not be heir with my son namely Isaac and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son but God said to Abraham do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, which is Hagar, because he is your seed. So Ishmael was his seed also, but the promise wasn't through Ishmael, it was through Isaac. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and skin of water and putting it under his uh, on his shoulder gave it to the gave it rather in the boy to Hagar and sent her away then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba and the water and the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot for she said to herself let me not see the death of the boy so she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept and God heard the voice of the lad the angel of the Lord came to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Now, that nation became the Arabs. No, out of Ishmael. The Arab nation came out of Ishmael. Think about the conflict in Israel right now between Israel and Hamas, Jews versus Arabs. The uh, Arabs came through the lineage of Ishmael. The Jewish nation came through the lineage of Isaac. So that's why you have you've had a, a conflict with Jews and Arabs for thousands of years because they're basically distant kin battling against each other. So that shows the consequence of that, that sin that Abraham uh, and, and Sarah 
uh, committed, uh, you know, by her giving Abraham her her servant Hagar, and look what came of it. Okay, so that was the, the generational consequence to to that sin. That's why there's always been conflict between Arabs and Jews or Hebrews because of uh, Ishmael and Isaac. That's just a little side note. Right there, kind of putting everything here into context. So that's the story of Isaac. So Abraham and Sarah had uh, Isaac. And the name uh, Isaac, his Hebrew name means laughter. Because Isaac brought Abraham and Sarah great joy because he was the child of promise. And so Isaac had grown up, as we are in our text this morning. And God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about that's in verse 2 of chapter 22 man we can't understand how Abraham felt but I'm sure as parents if you were told that you had to sacrifice your own son by God our heart would probably leap into our throats we would have panicked we would have been anxious. We would have buried our head in tears and in anguish because we have to sacrifice our own child. And that's something. But God, this was all part of his will for his life. And what did Abraham do? He obeyed God. And they went up to that mountain so we're going to look at three principles this morning about this test and how this all points to Christ first we're going to look at the preparation the purpose and then the provision looking through our text here this morning in Genesis 22 look at the very first verse Genesis 22 and 1 it came to pass after these things that God did what tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. So this is the preparation for the test. The key word is after these things. What things? Abraham had seen the Lord faithfully guide him from Ur of the Chaldeans when he was 75 years old. This is 25 years later. Okay, Abraham had witnessed God faithfully guide him from Ur which we read in Genesis 12 to Haran and then to Canaan. Abraham heard the Lord say to him in Genesis 15 and 5, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. That's generous, Genesis rather 15 and 5. Abraham had, had witnessed the miraculous birth of Isaac. People, don't let it be lost on you. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. <laughs> okay, she was twice or three times past natural birthing age. Don't let that be lost. Abraham witnessed the birth of Isaac as a 100-year-old man. It wasn't done through IVF, you know, in vitro fertilization. It wasn't done through a surrogacy, renting someone's womb. It wasn't done through artificial insemination. 
It was done through natural procreation. A 100-year-old husband with his 90-year-old wife. That is pretty much a miracle all in itself. So Abraham had witnessed that. He witnessed that. So what does all this mean? It was it, God prepared Abraham for this test. After all these things that Abraham witnessed in his life so far, God tested Abraham. And as believers, God has prepared us too. We have baptism. We have the gospel. We have the Lord's Supper that we uh, administer. We have the Holy Spirit in whom we have forgiveness, joy, and power. God has prepared us to live in this world as believers. We have the means of grace, observing baptism, observing communion, scripture reading, prayer, meditating on scripture. God has prepared us and in our text he prepared Abraham for this test the means of grace God uses those things uh, to pour upon us courage and confidence to pour upon us biblical insight and biblical wisdom and the test that we go through is never random. I always remember this, people. Life is not a series of random things. The tests that God puts us through are never random. They always are for a reason. They're not an accident. So God prepared Abraham for this test with his life up to this point. So was Abraham ready? Let's see. Next, we have the purpose of the test. So what's the purpose? Why, why did God do this? Why did God put him through this? First of all, we have to understand the nature of tests. Tests, God tests us to bring us, in essence, to greater heights of conviction. And he gives us tests to take us to greater heights of Christian character, to mold us. Testing and tempting are two different things. God doesn't tempt us. James tells us that in James 1. God does not tempt us, but God does test us through trials. He tests us. But his testing is to grow us. It's to grow us in dependence upon him okay to give us greater conviction in what we believe there's always a purpose listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verses 6 through 7 this is what Peter says the apostle in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to you so that your faith 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be tested genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ is revealed. So what does Peter say the purpose of testing is for the believer? That our faith may be tested and proved to be genuine. And through that genuineness, through that authenticity, it will result in praise, honor, and glory when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we endure our test, as we grow in our faith because of these tests, when we see Christ, there's going to be outbursts of praise, honor, and glory. It's going to make it more sweeter when we see Christ because he has tested us. The testing of Christ never leads to despair. If it leads you to despair, you're not being tested. You're being chastised. The testing of, 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 of Christians leads to greater faith, leads to deeper faith, leads to a deeper trust in God. Do you ever ask the question? I'm sure some of us probably do. Do you ever ask yourself the question, why are you going through this test? Why? Why me? Why my child? Why my job? Why my health? We ask those things, Lord, why? Why my achy back? Lord, why does this job have to be so hard? Why do I have to deal with these people? We all ask those questions, Lord, why? When we're being tested, we cry out, Lord, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? And you know, when you really think about it, there's never a perfect time to go through a trial. I mean, think about that. There's no perfect time to go through a trial. But we ask those questions. And those questions in, in and of themselves are not sinful. Because in our human condition, in our, in our sinful state, in our sinful world, we ask these questions. Lord, why? God says, because I love you right where you are. But I love you too much to leave you where you are. What does that mean? Our tests refine us like gold. Gold is purified through fire. Excuse me. Gold is made more pure through fire, through being in a kiln. And it is purified of all the dross that drops off of it. It is purified through fire. God purifies us through the fire of trials. I've gone through many trials in, in, in my Christian life, and I know you all have too. 
if we could take an honest assessment, we can say, Lord, those trials have helped me to grow and depend on you more. They haven't driven me away from you. Trials, tests, refine us. They mature us. They season us. Trials season us. They make us more mature believers. And we could be mature to the point where when we see other believers enduring their trials, we can come alongside them and encourage them. We live in such a self-centered, self-focused world that people are all about themselves. They want all the attention. They want you to just focus on them. They're energy vampires. <laughs> they suck all the energy from everybody else and they, they want it for themselves. No, as believers, as we mature in the faith, guess what? We encourage others. We encourage other believers, especially believers. Because sinners are not being tested. Sinners are being punished for their sins. They're not being tested because they're believers. Because they have no faith in God. What's being tested? Their faith in God's not being tested because guess what? They have no faith in God. They're being punished. They're dealing with the consequences of their sinful actions. For believers, no, God doesn't punish us. God chastens us because he loves us. Chastening is about correcting us. And he tests us in order to strengthen our faith. To refine us. To mature us. To season us. And to humble us. And to lead us to rely on his grace. So we're looking at Abraham. Abraham is being refined He's being matured. He's being seasoned. He's being humbled because God told him to take your son, prepare a sacrifice. And guess what? He did it. And I'm sure it was a long walk up to that mountain. We don't know how long, but it wasn't like a few minutes, you know, like walk from here to the service station at the corner. No. But this was a test for Abraham. That's why I said the Lord tested Abraham God tested him God was examining Abraham's heart I mean God tests us people he's testing he's examining our heart is your faith genuine is it real or are you just worshiping me for the benefits are you just worshiping me so you can say I'm blessed and highly favored of the Lord Are you worshiping me just so you can say I'm blessed? God is on my side. No, is your faith real? Is it genuine? If I don't heal you, will you still worship me? Paul experienced this. Hold this spot in Genesis. Look at 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians. Yes. Paul talks about his uh, thorn in the flesh. 
Second Corinthians 12. Second Corinthians 12, verse 7. We're talking about the purpose of the test that Abraham received and how it points to us and also Christ. Second Corinthians 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Buffet means to beat me. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Remember, this is Paul who wrote almost half of the New Testament. God sent him a messenger. I mean, God uh, gave him a thorn in the flesh. And it was a messenger of Satan to humble him. So that he wouldn't get too heady and high-minded, as my old folks used to say. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. We don't know what it was. But Paul was longing for relief from this painful hindrance to his ministry. He went to the Lord. Begging him. To remove it. But guess what? His request was denied. Just as Christ's request was denied in the garden. That cup of suffering. That Christ wanted to pass. But he drank that cup of suffering. Christ said what? Lord, not my will, but your will. That's what Christ told God the Father in the garden. That cup of suffering, he wanted to pass it, but he took that cup of suffering for us. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. He took that cup. That agonizing death. Remember, Christ prayed until his sweat was like drops of blood. That was because of the physical agony that he knew he was about to endure on the cross in atoning for our sins. That's how much in agony our Savior was, but yet he still did not pass that cup of suffering. He took it. So his request was denied in the garden. And here, Paul's request for this thorn in the flesh was denied. But that wasn't the end of it. Think about things you've been praying for. Think about ailments and illnesses and sicknesses and different sufferings that we have in the flesh, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's through employment or family members or whatever the case may be. All the things that we suffer from in this world, things that we are tested and tempted with. We pray, Lord, provide relief. And because God doesn't necessarily provide relief, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Don't confuse those things. But this is the great thing that we need to get out of this purpose of testing. Continue with this passage here in 2 Corinthians. So verse 8, Paul pleaded to the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
for my strength. My strength. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Excuse me. Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God told him his grace is sufficient. This is the constant availability of divine grace that we have at our disposal. God would not remove the thorn as Paul has requested, but God will continue to supply him with the grace to endure it. He does that with all of us. God may not remove those things that are testing us. Those why questions we asked earlier. God may not remove those things. But you know what, friends? He gives us the grace to endure it. That is greater than anything. He gives you the grace to endure your job. He gives you the grace to endure the aches and pains you feel in parts of your body that you didn't even know existed. He gives you the grace to deal with the troubles and trials in this life. <clears throat> God never leaves us alone in our testings. The purpose of those things is to bring us closer to the all-sufficient grace of God, to be able to experience the all-sufficient divine grace that is bestowed upon all of us as believers. That is the purpose of that testing. That is the purpose that Abraham was tested. So that he could see that God will provide. God tests us to strengthen us. Satan tests us to destroy us. Satan attacks the weakest points of our life. To bring us down. To bring us to defeat. Satan will uh, have no greater pleasure than to test us to the point where we want to become apostates and depart from the faith. I remember when I was in high school, one of my, one of our teachers, she was one of the toughest English teachers at our school. She would say on the very first day of class, half of this class is going to fail this course. And the way that she said it, <laughs> you would think that she would take great joy in your failure. But that's not God. Satan takes great joy in our failure. God doesn't. The God of Abraham and Isaac. I said this earlier and I'll say it again. God's tests are not intended to destroy us. They are intended to grow us, to develop us, to help us, to nurture us, to mature us in the faith. And that's what we're going to see in Abraham. And that's what we saw through Christ. Christ didn't grow and, and, and mature because of the way he was tested. But that testing, he perfected God's will by going to that cross when he didn't have to. He could have passed that cup of suffering, but he did it because he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Satan perhaps wanted to test our Lord. 
In fact, when you read Matthew 4 and Luke 4, you see that. Well, Satan tested Christ after he fasted 40 days. You see it in Matthew 4 and you'll see it in Luke 4. If you, you know, reading through Luke chapter at a time, you'll see that tomorrow where, where uh, Satan put Christ to the test to try to tempt him three times. But our Savior endured those trials. And Abraham endured it. And he endured it well. And because of that, we see the provision for the test. Looking back at our passage, the provision was made for the test. So back to Genesis here. This is what the scripture says. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his ser- two of his servants with him. And Isaac split the wood, went to the place that God told him. Then you look down at verse uh, 7. Isaac said, my father, you know, where's the, you know, the, the, the fire is here and the, <laughs> and the wood is here. You know, where's the, where's the lamb? And what did Abraham say? My son, I love this. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And fast forward down to verse 13 and 14. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked up and there was a ram in the thicket. And Abraham took the ram and offered as a burnt offering. He called the name of this place. The Lord will provide or Jehovah Jireh. So the provision was made. The Lord will provide. This is our God. God sees our needs. And he does what? He provides. He sees our needs. He provides his grace. As we read in 2 Corinthians 12. (coughs) He provides his love. He provides his assurance that he would never leave us nor forsake us. God provides. He sees the need of Noah and provides an ark. He saw Israel in Egyptian bondage. He heard their cries for over 400 years. So he sent Moses to go to Pharaoh. He told Moses he heard the cries of his people. He provided a way through the Red Sea. He provided a way for David to defeat Goliath and knocked out that uncircumcised Philistine. He provided for uh, in Daniel the third chapter Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego provided for them when they were thrown into the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar said turn the fire up seven times hotter (laughs) than normal then a time later some of his servants went and opened up the furnace and saw that they were still there and they saw someone that looked like the son of God the fire was so hot that it consumed them 
the men who opened it. That's in Daniel, the third chapter. But the Lord provided. He was in the midst of the fire with them. He provided a fourth man who was a prefigure of Christ. That means he's with us. He provides for our test. With every test, God provides a way out. With every temptation to sin, God provides a way out. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. Paul says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand under it. With every temptation to sin, guess what? God provides a way out. With every test that we have to endure, God always provides a way out. This same God of Abraham and Isaac is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point of this sermon is that in Jesus we have the ultimate provision. Abraham named his place the Lord will provide or Yahweh Yireh, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord ultimately provided for us his son. Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham offered his son, this points to God offering up his son, Jesus Christ. We have the ultimate provision. We read in our scripture reading this morning, uh, Romans 8 and 32, where again it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God spared Isaac, but he didn't spare Christ. You think about the wood that Abraham and Isaac took up to the mountain. Jesus willingly took the wood of the cross and marched up that hill to Golgotha. Abraham and Isaac went up to Mount Moriah. Jesus went up to Golgotha with the wood of the cross on his back. But in this case, in Christ's case, there will be no substitute. That ram in the bush that Abraham, God had provided for him was a substitute for Isaac. But Christ was no substitute. He, he was substituting down in our place, but there was no substitute provided in the place of Christ. Christ became our substitute. There was no substitute ram this time when Christ went to the cross. No, he went willingly to the cross. He was arrested quickly. We read that in Matthew's account, and you'll see it also in Luke's account and John's. He was arrested quickly. I mentioned this last week. He went through three false trials where false witnesses were brought up against him. He was sentenced without regard to the fact that Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He tried to wash his hands of it. 
He was mocked repeatedly. We read in the psalm this morning where his, his beard was plucked out and he was spat on and his cheek was uh, punched. All this happened to our Savior. He was abandoned by all of his disciples. You read that in Matthew's account. All of them abandoned him and Peter denied knowing him three times and Judas betrayed him, offered him over to the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. He was beaten brutally. He was crucified uh, in the most barbaric way imaginable. But he rose triumphantly as our provision. He provided the way to salvation for all who believe. He became our provision. He reversed the curse. He's alive. We sung the song Living Hope this morning. He's our living hope. He is risen. He's alive never to die again. Death has no more dominion over Christ. He was the ultimate provision. He was the ultimate one. The once for all sacrifice as the writer in Hebrew says there's no other sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. It was enough. It satisfied. We talk about that, that word propitiation. He was the propitiation for our sins. He was the appeasement of wrath. Christ is the only one who could appease God's wrath against sin. We would be crushed under God's wrath for one sin. Okay, look at what one sin did to the world, the sin of our first parents. We could not bear the wrath of God for one sin that we commit. Not even one. But Christ bore the wrath of God against all sin. As our provision, as our sacrifice. Jesus also lives to provide what we need when faced with life's test. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus provides. God provided his only son. When we think about this season that we're in, we're, 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 we're celebrating the birth of our provision. I was thinking about this this morning, watching television. You know, of course, you're inundated with all types of commercials if you watch any type of TV. I was, I, was, I had this thought this morning. I listened to uh, someone talk about this past week on a podcast I was listening to that our culture, particularly here in America, our society over the last probably 30 years has been successfully transitioned to a Christless Christmas. I mean, think about it. We've been transitioned as a society, as a culture, successfully by the world, by the secularist, to a Christless Christmas. 
And I felt some conviction about it when I was listening to the podcast because the uh, the man I listened to said, "Think about this. Most of the most most of the favorite Christmas movies have nothing to do with the birth of Christ." I like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I do. It's a stupid movie. The Griswolds are a silly family. I do. But it, it has absolutely zero. And they don't even have Christmas at the house. The, the dinner they had was at Christmas Eve. Probably didn't think about that, about that movie. Elf. Another Christmas favorite. It's a funny movie. Has nothing to do with the bird zip. First of all, there's no such thing as elves anyway, but that's a whole different, you know, Santa Claus either. But anyway, this thing with all these, Polar Express, same thing. It's about the, the young kid on train getting to go meet Santa because he didn't think, and the, the themes would believe. <laughs> not believe in Jesus, or not believe in the incarnation of Christ, but believe that Santa is real. That's, that, you know, Polar Express, that's what it's about. Believe. <laughs> believe in Santa. But it's a favorite Christmas movie, especially among uh, a certain generation of, of children who are now adults. Just think about all your favorite Christmas movies. Christmas with the Cranks. And me and friends watching that uh, uh, earlier this week, or last week rather. You know, Christmas with the Cranks, Santa Claus, and just all these, none of them deal. And, and the man was saying on that podcast, we have been socially engineered and transitioned away from a Christless Christmas right before our eyes Christmas is our holiday it is Christmas is a Christian holiday it's our day but we've allowed the world over these years to hijack it to the point where we don't even get it because we've been socially transitioned along with everybody else to not even think about Christ. You know, you hear people, and what really got me going yesterday was uh, um, somebody was like interviewing somebody. They was talking about, you know, what's the, what's, what's the, what do you like about the Christmas season? Oh, family and and love and peace and and all the magic in there and everybody's real giving and as if there's an absence of sin during this time of year, which is not, you know. But as you know, it's about family and you know about giving a season of giving, you know, a season of cheer. Nothing about the God Man Jesus Christ being born, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords appearing in a major God becoming flesh God becoming our provision even Christians we don't let that slip we don't let that come out of our mouths it's all about family faith family football you know the three of the holy trinity of the south so we have to center our thoughts to who this season is about. That's why a lot of churches do Advent because we, we, we're centering on that. It is truly about Christ and what he came to do. 
Because at the end of the day, people, that's going to be what's most important. It's not that family's not important. It's not that uh, giving people hope and gifts and whatnot is not important. Or giving, you know, providing a, quote, good Christmas for children, which is something else I don't get. But we, we, we don't, that's not what it's all about. It's about the God man. Jesus Christ coming into this world. So closing this out. Abraham didn't call his mountain Mount Sacrifice or Mount Blood. He called this mountain the Lord provides. Again, verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh Yaira or excuse me or Jehovah Jaira the Lord will provide in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided I heard a preacher say this one time back when I was younger and I almost shouted just hearing it where God guides he provides wherever God leads you He's going to provide. Whatever he calls you to, he's going to provide. Whatever test he puts on you, guess what? He's going to provide. He's going to provide you with the grace to endure it. He's going to provide. How do we know this? Because we know Jesus. We know that Jesus is the son of sacrifice. We know that Jesus is the son of Abraham. We know that whatever Jesus says he's going to do, he does. He provides. Amen? Let us pray. Father, thank you for the preparation of the test, for the purpose of the test, for the provision of the test. The ultimate provision is Jesus Christ the son of Abraham. Thank you, Lord, that you fulfilled prophecy from Abraham to Christ, thousands of years of human history, Lord, and you fulfilled that in Christ. Lord, help us to see you as provider. Well, many of us are in enduring tests right now. Lord, give us the grace to endure those tests. Help us, Lord, to see that you are with us, that you will never leave us, that you will not abandon us. Thank you, Lord, for providing your son, Jesus Christ, as the ultimate sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice for our sins. Lord, as we go through this week, strengthen us, encourage us, grow us, refine us, mature us, season us, and humble us through our tests. And Lord, may we always look to you for help. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.